Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast, your home for all things outdoors in the Badger State. I'm your host, Josh Raley, and today I'm coming to you live from the parking lot of a Holiday Inn Express in Southern Illinois. My family and I are on our way home from a nice vacation down in Alabama. We had a great time hanging out with family and friends, and uh, hey, I even got to go for a hike with a shotgun and some turkey calls in my pocket. I, uh, I didn't see or hear a turkey the entire time, so I'm not sure you can really call what I did turkey hunting, but... Uh, hey, I gave it a good go anyway, and uh, I even got to record an episode with my dad, which was really uh, a neat experience. Uh, we chatted about hunting back in the day, deer camp culture in the north, and how that compares to uh, the hunting club culture of the south that I kind of grew up in. And uh, we just had some fun hunting stories about, uh, you know, being out in the woods and sharing that with family and friends. And you know, some stories that I'm really going to cherish for a long time. So I'm, I'm excited to bring that episode to you in a couple of, of, of weeks. But for this week, however, we have other topics to cover. It is April. It is not quite turkey season yet here in the state of Wisconsin. And that means that I've got fly fishing on my mind. And I know a lot of you do as well, uh, specifically fly fishing in the driftless. Uh, Wisconsin driftless fishing is in full swing right now for many. Uh, if you don't fly fish already, um, you know, it can be really an intimidating world to sort of wade into and one that I've only just begun to explore over the last couple of years, but it has very quickly become one of my favorite things to do uh, outside of bow hunting for deer and chasing longbeards around. So in this episode, I've got my buddy Pierce Nellis on. Uh, Pierce is the head guide with Good Chance Fly Fishing based in the southern Wisconsin Driftless. And uh, Pierce knows what he's talking about when it comes to fly fishing. The guy just catches fish. I've actually got a trip uh, coming up with him in May. We're going to uh, attempt the Driftless Triple Crown. We're going to try to uh, get a couple of long beards on the ground that morning. Going to try to find some morels during the day and hopefully catch some trout in the afternoon. Uh, it's going to be a great time. We're hopefully going to be able to document all of that for you guys uh, and record a podcast afterwards. So really looking forward to that. But today I'm talking with Pierce about driftless trout on the fly. Pierce has been chasing trout in the driftless for nearly a decade. And uh, in this episode, we talk about many of the things that make the driftless region of Wisconsin so special. We talk about some of the challenges and opportunities that are unique to the area. We talk about tactics specific to the driftless. And uh, we even hit on some uh, go-to flies to help you catch more fish. Now, if you've never fly fished before and you want to give it a shot in a world-class fishery, or you just want to up your game and go with an experienced guide to kind of learn a little bit more to, to sort of push yourself outside of your comfort zone, reach out to Pierce. 
Uh, you can get a hold of him on his website, www.goodchanceflyfishing.com, or you can find him on Instagram at goodchanceflyfishing. He has the experience and the knowledge of the local water to put you on the fish. So reach out to him today. I'm sure his dates are booking up very, very quickly. But uh, yeah, reach out and see if you can get yourself on the schedule. So, uh, hey, I'm going to get out of this sketchy parking lot, get back up to the room. It's almost midnight. So I'm going to try to catch some sleep before we drive the rest of the way home to Wisconsin in the morning. So without further ado... Here's my conversation with Pierce Nellis. All right, joining me today for this episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast is Pierce Nellis. What's going on, Pierce? Not much, man. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you for joining me this week. Uh, We've connected over Instagram. It's nice to finally get to uh, talk to you in person. We've exchanged messages for quite a while. Yeah, I think it was back during pre-rut or something like that. It was the first time we shot each other a message. Yeah, it's been a minute, man. It's been a minute. So this has been a long time coming. Uh, it mm. appears from your Instagram you like to chase all the critters I do. Yeah, absolutely. Trout, turkeys, and deer. Yeah, that's right, man. You, and, <laughs> hey, I'll tell you, it, it looks like you're a lot better than me, uh, probably at all three. But uh, you're a lot better than me, especially when it comes to fly fishing for trout. Well, those are your words, not mine, but I'll take the credit. <laughs> yeah, trust me, you, you haven't seen me try to cast a fly yet. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty sad. So, uh, yeah, what we're going to talk about today is uh, fly fishing, specifically fly fishing for trout in the Driftless region. Uh, when I first realized I was going to be moving up to Wisconsin, I started Googling like outdoor opportunities in Wisconsin and uh, doing a lot of, of uh, fly fishing for trout has always been kind of a dream of mine. Uh, in fact, mm-hmm. we went to to Georgia on vacation uh, a number of years ago, and that was the first time I ever got to fly fish for trout, and I just, I fell in love with it, you know? And so realizing, and I, I didn't know previously, but realizing that Wisconsin had such an amazing fishery, uh, man, I was, I was stoked from day one. Um, it really excited to get out there. And then I realized, wow, fishing here in the Driftless is beautiful, and it has all sorts mm-hmm. of challenges that I did not anticipate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, you know, I, yeah, man, I the, got out there and I. The driftless is sorry. Go ahead. No, you go. Uh, the, the driftless is absolutely a, a hidden gem. It's it's slowly becoming less and less hidden, but it's. I mean, we've got over thirteen thousand miles of trout streams in Wisconsin alone, and the driftless extends over into southeastern Iowa and northeastern. I'm uh, sorry, southeastern Minnesota, northeastern Iowa, and uh, yeah, it's. I mean, it's a hidden gem. I mean, with fishing in Wisconsin in general is a treat, but the trout especially are, it doesn't get any better in my opinion. That's right, man. That's right. You know, I, I went out for uh, one of my first times here and I thought I was going to uh, have like the, the Western experience. You know, I see those guys out there just casting, you know, and I get out there and I find a Creek and it's like six feet across and a foot and a half deep. And I'm like, wait a second, you know, and the grass is a good way to lose flies around here. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, that's right. And the the grass is 10 foot high on both sides of the Creek. And I'm like, wait a second, how is this, how is this happening? In fact, I went out one time and I'm, I've got on X out and I'm walking Mm -hmm. to, to this Creek that I can't see. I'm walking through this huge patch of grass and I'm like, that Creek says it should be right here. And I take the next step and I fall into it. I couldn't even tell (laughs) that I was coming up on water because everything was so grown up around it. And I, I mean, it, oh, was, yeah. it must've been three and a half feet across at the point where yeah. I finally did oh, yeah. find it. I mean, it was tiny. Those are some of the best ones in my opinion. I oh, love those. Dude, the grass was covered. Super skinny. Oh, 
I turned around and went back home. I was, <laughs> I was like, I, I don't know what to do with this. Were there were there any openings at least that no. you could weasel something? Oh. Nothing. Not I mean, it was like the it was like just an absolute jungle. Yeah. It was a jungle. But anyway, well, how did you get into how did you get into fly fishing? Uh, I got into fly fishing in 2014, I think it was. That was the first time I picked up a fly rod. Um, that was in the heyday of uh, Orvis Madison still being around. Um, uh, I did their, just the, the free one-hour, or maybe it was two-hour, I don't know what it was, but the freebie fly fishing 101 class that they offer um, and picked up a fly rod kind of, started getting a feel for it. Um, or at least so I thought. Um, and then as soon as that was done, signed up for the, the fly fishing 201 where we went to Violas park in Madison and threw little foam beetles to bluegills. And it took me like all day and they were about to wrap things up and I laced one out there and somehow ended up lucking out and, uh, catching one. So after that, I was, I was pretty much hooked, um, and ended up, that was, I guess, that summer, and then the following spring, um, my buddy Chance and I, um, who I guess I'm going to take that as a quick segue there when I when I mention him because when when our you look at our our company name, Good Chance Fly Fishing, uh, that actually that came as a joke um, when I was in when I was I I studied abroad in New Zealand in 2018 and. I was doing a digital marketing class and for one of the, the assignments we had to make a, an e-commerce website. And I was like, what if I do a online fly shop for my project? I don't know. Cause my chances time flies at the time. And I was like, I'll call it good chance fly fishing. And then it just kind of <laughs> stayed in the back of my mind since then. And once we decided that uh, we wanted to start actually guiding and doing stuff a little bit more professionally, uh, I'd say that very loosely, um, now yeah, I was like, Hey, do you care if I use that name? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he and I, his, his sister lived out in, uh, Denver and we, our spring breaks aligned and we both bought fly rods about a week before and, uh, went out there and I think we were out there and fished for five days and caught all of like six fish or something like that. Oh my goodness. Just dumping gear, like just lost it. Like we, we just had no clue what we were doing. Absolutely no clue. Uh, just trying to figure it out. The majority, our, our early years of fly fishing together were extremely self-taught. We hadn't really figured out any resources that were out there or anything. So it was a lot of trial and error and a lot of lost flies. Man. <laughs> uh, well, once we kind of started figuring things out, then that lessened up a little bit, but yeah, it's you, still. <laughs> it's a man, especially around here, like losing 20 bucks of flies. You can oh, do yeah. that in a hurry. Like, yeah. it's, it would almost be cheaper for me to just go with a guide every time than to buy my own flies. Just go, just go with a guide who's like, I'll provide your flies. And because uh, yep. man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose a bunch of them. So, tell me <laughs> about this transition that you've kind of gone through from fishing for fun and a hobby into now kind of making a little bit of a career of it. Like, what's what's that been like for you? Uh, it's been. It's been kind of quick and, uh, you know, we, we were, we were talking earlier about, um, just kind of how I got into it and stuff. And 
uh, I've got a, another company that I'm starting. I've been working with a relative in Australia, um, manufacturing some uh, mobile asphalt plants and getting that company off the ground. And I'm at the point where I was kind of like, okay, I got to pay the rent here. And I really like to fish. And uh, <laughs> this last year I started, um, I ended up kind of coming on uh, with another company as a casting instructor for some of their uh, fly fishing schools. And that kind of got me sort of into that kind of instructing, coaching mindset kind of, which I've always had. I coached, you know, high school football a a few years back and stuff like that. It's always been something that, you know, I've just really, really enjoyed. I just love watching somebody kind of figure something out and then it just clicks. And I like just absolutely like in my mind, that's one of the most rewarding things out there, you know, you can do for someone. And, uh, yeah, after last year when I was just working like crazy on my other company and then, um, you know, if I didn't have meetings or anything, I would run down the road and do some fishing and all that. Or as soon as I was done with work for the day, I'd run down the road and fly fish. Um, I was kind of like, okay, well, I think, I think I've got enough under my belt here and I really, really want to give it a shot before I lose the opportunity to. So we launched a uh, good chance fly fishing. We decided to <laughs> not as the e-commerce store, but as the, the guide company. Um, but yeah, this is, uh, this is what we're doing. It's our first year as a guide company, but we're focusing exclusively on trout uh, in the Driftless area. That's great, man. Uh, tell me about uh, the clientele that you're working with. Like, And specifically, I want to know, like, what are the experience levels of folks that you're working with? Uh, Everyone from, you know, a total newbie who's never picked up a fly rod before um, to, you know, guys who just they want to learn more about, um, you know, how can they sort of take their their fishing to the next level, whether it be just introducing different types of casting, um, learning more about how to approach water, you know, you name it. I mean, I, we're, we're pretty, we're pretty well-rounded. Okay. At least we try to be. Yeah. So if, if a guy has never picked up a fly rod before, mm-hmm. he can go fishing with you. Absolutely. Awesome. And, and if, and if I've done a ton of fly fishing already, you, you're, I can go with you and you're going to give me some coaching, going to help with some tips and pick up, you know, see what I can pick up from you that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. All right. Absolutely. So kind of for everybody. Great. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Um, I've talked to a lot of guys, um, who have uh, around here expressed interest in fly fishing and, um, you know, a lot of folks who, who love to take out the spinning, you know, the spinning gear and, uh, you know, get out on the streams. They're like, yeah, I'd I'd like to try it. But, um, you know, for one reason or or another, they haven't pulled the trigger. They, they don't feel like they've got the skill set. They feel intimidated by the amount of gear that they need to buy. Uh, Mm -hmm. man, you go watch YouTube and type in like getting started fly fishing. Holy smokes. You just get inundated with, with videos and all kinds of content that's out there. Where would you recommend a guy get started? If he says, Hey, I want to give fly fishing a shot. I live in Wisconsin. I've got world-class fishery right down the road. I need to get into this. Uh, where would you recommend they start? I'd recommend either going with a guide or seeing if you can find someone to do a casting lesson with you and just picking it up and just while you're out there with them. I mean, even if you have a friend who fly fishes, just see if they'll take you out or if they're, if you can go over and 
to their garage or their tying desk or any of their gear or whatever and just ask them to explain it because it is, you know, early on, especially just the terminology alone of, you know, different parts of the rod, the different, you know, line types, your leaders, your tippets, you know, different, I mean, entomology in itself is an entire, an entirely different, like, I mean, that's a whole discussion on itself. And that's something that, you know, there's definitely a steep learning curve on that, but. Yeah. I spent a week trying to figure out the difference between leader and tippet. And yep. <laughs> just to realize like, wait a second. So you're just, wait, what? Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, that terminology piece is really, really intimidating. Yeah, absolutely. What's, uh, I, I want to get into a, a lot of the, the, the specifics, but where do you guide primarily? So you say driftless, like, is there a specific portion of the driftless where you're mostly working? Uh, Southwest Wisconsin. Okay. Southwest. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll go as far north as Barroquo, but just given that, uh, based off, based off of where I'm at and a Southern portion of the state here, I, uh, I, I prefer to keep it kind of, uh, kind of Southern. Okay. And we get a lot of clients from, uh, down near Chicagoland. I'm, I'm, I, used, I lived in Naperville for the past six years, the suburb of Chicago and got to be good buddies with the guys at DuPage fly company down there. And, uh, those guys were awesome. Let me drop a stack of cards in their shop. And, uh, not that anyone else should do that, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, yeah, they've been awesome to work with and they, they've been cool. And, uh, you know, feeding me some people and folks come in asking about the driftless and all that. So yeah, we've primarily been getting a lot of business from those guys, but that's great. All are welcome. Well, I, I'm really <laughs> hoping guys that shortened the drive. But. Yeah. I, I'm hoping that, that some of the folks who uh, listen to this podcast, who've been saying to themselves, Hey, I, I need to get out and try some fly fishing or, you know, maybe they just want to expand their off season. And I say off season because it's not deer season. And that seems to rule the day right. here in Wisconsin. <laughs> I want to expand my off season repertoire. And, and, you know, I've only got a Turkey tag or two for the year or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I want something else nice to do in the spring. And uh, man, it's, super hard to beat mornings out on a, you know, a nice, clear, cool stream. I remember being mm-hmm. out last spring and I'm, uh, I'm casting and I can hear turkeys gobbling all around me. And it's yeah. just, it's just like, man, I need to have a shotgun with me and this fly rod in my hand right, right. now. But, uh, but talk, tell me about how the fishing is this time of year. So this episode is going <clears> to <throat> air, I believe on April 5th. Um, if, if I'm not correct, then, uh, well, sorry, everyone, but what, how's the fishing this time of year? Fantastic. We're recording March 17th. We're recording March 17th. This yep. will air April 5th. So talk, tell me about that, like three week to a month time period. Uh, well, right now we're in that, that first warm week that I'm sure everyone's going to be remembering and hopefully they were out in the water, but it's been, it's been ramping up quickly now that, uh, we got all the melt going off, but with um in, in April, you know, it's we, we really start having consistent hatches. It's kind of prime time for um everything from blue wings to uh we start seeing some caddis around this time of year as well. Um <clears throat> you know, usually mid April or so is when we really get consistent like daily um blue wing hatches. Uh, everything leading up to that, you know, we've got midges and scuds that are pretty much 
cuz don't hatch obviously but uh midges um they're they're kind of a year round type deal and they're fun they're fun they're a great time to uh you know be throwing little midge patterns and you will catch fish but blue wings uh when you can get in a real thick blanket hatch when they're just coming off and trout noses are up and they're just sipping on the surface it it that's how you know spring is here um as it starts warming up from there you know uh we'll start getting into seeing more and more caddis come off um especially you know once may rolls around um it was i think it was like may 5th or something last year we had an awesome uh granted caddis hatch that was just like i mean it, they were everywhere it was just a blanket but um <clears throat> yeah and then you know towards the end of may starting into june we'll get into our crane flies and that's honestly my favorite hatch um that just these big super leggy bugs i mean that they there's something about them they just draw out every fish in the creek it, really? it's the best yeah interesting yeah i mean for them it's it's like a t-bone steak compared you've got all these you know blue wing and caddis cheeseburgers floating by and then all of a sudden like here's a ribeye and <laughs> it's just irresistible <laughs> that's awesome is there any way that i can like time these hatches so i i know they kind of become a little bit of a daily occurrence but there are those there are those days that just really stand out um mm-hmm. and you know i i don't know if they're i mean i i don't know a lot about this so are there like weather conditions i can be on the lookout for because you know I, i've tried to fish and, and sort of catch a good hatch you know and, mm-hmm. and you know, i would love to be out there and match the hatch and all that kind of stuff but so far yeah. my secret to fishing in the driftless is to find a place with water and throw a pink squirrel into it and uh, <laughs> fish bite it. But but I haven't had a lot of topwater success. And I've had some, mostly late summer with terrestrials, mm-hmm. um, but yeah. not a lot of that kind of, you know, that really finesse, true dry fly kind of kind of fishing, you know. So is there anything, right. that, like any kind of weather condition I can be looking for when I'm like, that's the day I need to be on the water? Overcast and drizzly. Overcast and drizzly. I mean, if you want to hit a, an awesome BWO hatch or even caddis, you know, on certain days if it's warm enough and the water temps are high enough, it's, I mean, it is, that that's when you want to hit it. Because basically they, uh, you know, just through evolution, they kind of figure out when they need to hatch. So certain light levels will actually trigger a hatch when, you know, it's a little bit tougher for a trout to see something uh, as compared to when there's, you know, full sunlight and there's, it's just lighting up the entire water column, you know, a trout can pick out a nymph like that. Like it's, it's almost too easy. So basically through, I couldn't even tell you how long of a evolutionary period or time period, but, um, or process, I guess, uh, once it's overcast, a lot of times that'll really kick off a hatch because they, they have just a little bit better chance of making it to the surface. Um, as they're, you know, basically, for those who don't know, you know, your, your blue winged olives, they're a type of mayfly. Uh, we have a couple different types of mayfly in the driftless. Um, but if you pick up a stone in the driftless, you know, in a riffle or something, you flip it over, you're going to see these tiny, I mean, you should see a lot because it's the driftless and it's just, I mean, our, our waters are unbelievably, uh, unbelievably fertile with, uh, food for food for fish. Um, but you'll see a little kind of shrimpy looking thing that'll probably just be kicking around and flicking its tail like crazy. Those are scuds. 
those are available to trout year round. Um, they're actually a crustacean, so they're, they don't really have a hatch. Um, but trout love them. Absolutely love them. But you'll see these little, little guys that are kind of crawling around on the rock that are, they're going to be pretty tight to the rock. They've got kind of, they'll have, you know, six legs and everything and a little slender body that comes down off of a fatter, you know, thorax section. Um, those are going to be your mayfly nymphs. So that's why, you know, when you go into a fly shop, that's why you see, you know, that's why the pheasant tail is shaped like it is. It's a, an invitation for a mayfly nymph. Um, and so basically when they hatch, these little nymphs are crawling around on the rocks trying to get bigger and, you know, grow as much as they can before they decide that it's time for them to swim up to the surface and, uh, you know, they'll reach the surface. They'll try and break through the surface tension of the water and then their wings will pop out, they'll dry out and then they'll fly away and then do their mating, drop eggs and turn into basically, you know, they'll, they turn into what's called a spinner where basically they're, they're spent and then their life cycle is basically over. Um, <clears throat> throughout all stages, trout love them. They absolutely love them. Okay. Um, but your, I mean, in, in the overcast conditions, that's really when those nymphs, uh, you know, they, they decide to make that ascent to the surface and that's what really kicks off the hatch. Yeah. And that just happens to be a really good day for people to be on the water too. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's too convenient. <laughs> yeah. Man, I uh, I went out to, uh, I think it's the Big Green River last year, mm-hmm. and it was just a bluebird day, just super, the sun was just beaming, man. It's just, it's mm-hmm. like the brightest day I've ever experienced. It's like the sun yeah. was just over my shoulder, basically. And I couldn't get within 30 yards of a trout, it seemed. Yeah. Like, it was like, man, I can't even, like, I can't get within casting distance of these things. Mm-hmm. And I came yeah. back, and I was complaining to somebody, and they were like, well, yeah, the sun was out. I was like, I don't even know what that means. What? Is, why does it matter that the, the sun's always out? What does that mean? But they were like, no, you got to try to go on an overcast day. It's like, okay, now that now that makes sense. Right, and it's not that you can't go out on a on a bright bluebird day and there will still be bugs hatching. There'll be bugs hatching every single day. It's not like it's one day they're on one day they're off, but it's just kind of a frequency type thing. Um, yeah, the, the main reason for that on sunny days that the fishing is tougher is because everything's lit up and it's very, very, very easy to cast a shadow. That's going to spook a trout or, I mean, it could be anything from casting shadows over the water, which will, 10 times out of 10 send fish scattering or, you know, shooting for cover. Um, but also just the way that trout look, the way their vision works is they're, they're constantly scanning the water column for food. And then they're also looking up to avoid predators. <clears throat> and so that's why when you're, when you're walking up on a Creek, especially with the sun at your back, basically that creates a big profile. Um, contrast you know in the trout's vision they're like okay there's something there versus had the sun maybe been in front of you you wouldn't have had as much of an issue because the sun shining right in their eyes and you know trout feed they typically are i mean almost always facing upstream because that's where the food's coming from yeah um they actually they, they use their pectoral fins to to they face into the current to basically rest as well and they'll actually kind of angle their bodies down and rest their pectoral fins um, and use the pressure from the current to pin them, not I say pin loosely, but 
essentially pin them to the uh, bottom so they don't have to sit there and expend calories while swimming. Oh, no kidding. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That is crazy. Okay. Well, yeah, so yeah. now that I hear you say that, I, I did everything wrong last year. Uh, <laughs> or two, year, two, two years ago now, uh, actually, that I think of it. Um, I went out. It was a really sunny day, so I made sure to keep the sun at my back so I could see better. Um, because I, I didn't want to be staring into the sun either. So turns out I ruined everything. So thanks for, <laughs> thanks for that tip. Um, is, is it safe You're to say the that first the, one. what's that? You're not the first one. <laughs> well, apparently, yeah, I'm the world's worst fly fisherman. Um, maybe, maybe we could start a company called world's worst, world's worst fly fisherman. <laughs> um, is it safe to say that this is your favorite time of year to fish or, or do you prefer like, like, is there like a sweet spot for you? I, I would say this is probably my favorite time. Yeah. Especially I, I would say usually May because I'll usually pick up a, uh, fifth or sixth season Turkey tag. And then I can try and fulfill my, uh, my dream of shooting a bird in the morning and then hitting the Creek that afternoon and oh, making that happen, which I was, I was fortunate enough to do last year. So uh. I'm, I'm knocking on wood that I can do that again. Um, but yeah, I mean, just between the hatches, between the, the turkey hunting, um, yeah, I, I think the month of the month of May is tough to beat because everything's, you know, it's warm finally after a long winter. Um, not that you can't have awesome days on the water in the winter, um, but yeah, usually right about now and in the upcoming weeks here is when things are really starting to just be hot on a consistent basis. Yeah, man, you're getting me fired up about getting out. I got to tell you. Now, I thought I heard a gobble this morning, and I'm going to tell myself I did, but, oh, man, did that get your blood pumping. <laughs> Dude, did, did you – I posted on Instagram the other day. <clears throat> I actually heard some gobbles, and uh, I got out and did some driving around to just peek at the at a couple of properties. I, I like to keep a tab on the on the flocks this time of year because I'm like, yeah. it's go time, you know, it, it, just because a property doesn't have turkeys on it right now doesn't mean it won't in the spring when they disperse. Right. But I've found that if you find a property with a lot of turkeys on it right now, it will have turkeys on it come <laughs> come season, right? And so I got out the other day and was just scanning properties and uh, drove past two different properties I have permission on and both and and these two out of the four um, had turkeys on them just out there strutting. Just I all did see that, up. yeah. Dude, I'm talking about – I did see that. I took yeah. the corner, and I had a heart attack. Like, I almost had to pull <laughs> off the road. It was like I didn't know that this was going to be an emotional experience for me. You know, <laughs> to, to see my first strutter of the year is just like, oh, I can't take it. I can't handle a it. A tear ran down your cheek. <laughs> oh, dude, it was just – it was amazing. And I, I stopped the car, and I'm, I'm 100 yards from them, and they just look at me and keep on – strutting oh, yeah. you know they're asserting that pecking order and they had oh, yeah. no care in the world about me now come april 20th or whatever it is uh they're going to care a lot about yeah. me uh, <laughs> all of a sudden and um but anyway so yeah just it's an amazing time of year it's a great time to get out oh, and uh, get out and fish but for for those who now okay so this is called the wisconsin sportsman podcast our yeah. reach is actually much broader than Wisconsin, though. Believe it or not, we got a bunch of crazy folks who don't live in Wisconsin who still listen to this podcast. So I'm pretty grateful for that, and welcome Absolutely. to all of you who are not listening from Wisconsin. But for those yeah, who maybe good. aren't familiar with the Driftless region, tell me a bit about what makes this area unique, specifically when it comes to fishing for trout. 
So the Driftless, I mean, if we, if we rewind all the way back to the Ice Age, the Driftless got its name, um, not then, but as, <laughs> as time went on and people showed up, uh, <clears throat> basically when the glacier passed across North America, it missed this area. So the area includes southeastern Minnesota, northeastern Iowa, and southwest and central west Wisconsin. Um, and basically, as a result of that, we've got a ton of spring creeks, like just an absolute ton of spring creeks. Um, I don't know if I mentioned it earlier. I, I might have. It might have been we were chatting. But we've got Wisconsin alone has over 13,000 miles of fishable trout water. Jeez. And, I mean, we're just spoiled, absolutely spoiled. And basically through, you know, certain – DNR efforts um, and some, you know, just trout being there, you know, brook trout are native to Wisconsin. Um, and then depending on, you know, there were certain waters where, um, you know, con- conditions just sucked, like there were just streams, but the land hadn't been managed properly. And the DNR has really done a lot of excellent work, especially as Trout Unlimited became prevalent on the scene and everything to really establish a, a strong foothold in conservation and, um, you know, just water, whether it be, you know, trout management, fish management, um, and just like taking care of the creeks that are in the drift list. Um, it's just an awesome little place. I mean, you can, the drift list is an area where, like you said, like you couldn't see that, that creek or whatever. And it was probably three feet wide. You know, I've, I've, seen people pull 18 inch trout out of a creek that's been three feet wide or stuff like that. It's, it is absolutely insane. You know, one of, one of the guys I used to work with, he was, uh, he was fishing out in, I think it was Iowa County somewhere, but same kind of thing. I mean, it was like a, a three or four foot wide creek and he dropped a nymph way, way down into this trench and pulled out a, like a 22 inch rainbow or something like that. just absurd. So, uh, I mean, that alone, I think is, and you know, like you said, uh, when we were chatting earlier about just throwing a, you were casting near structure and just saw this absolute behemoth brown trout come out of, you know, two feet of water to yep. slurp flying and stuff. I mean, it's, it's just so unique. And I mean, I could go on about this forever. I mean, the scenery, um, especially in the driftless, I mean, you've got these rolling Hills, tons of bluffs, um, the majority of the creeks are just absolutely breathtakingly clear. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, because the majority of them are spring fed. Um, so you're getting that water straight from the earth. Um, and it just, it creates this incredibly fertile ecosystem within the water. So it's great for bugs. It's great for the fish. Um, the spring fed creeks keep the water temps pretty consistent. Uh, which helps the trout year round whenever, you know, if, like last June, remember if it was just ungodly hot, um, yep. Yep. it's really, really hard on the fish. Cause basically when water temperature increases, the particles per million of oxygen in the water goes down. Um, so basically trout, they really, really thrive in, you know, mid to high 50 degree to 60 degree water like that's that's really their their sweet spot they're going to be happy then um you know they're usually eating when water temps are on the rise but once they get above 
about 65 ish, it really starts getting tough on the fish. So if you are fishing in conditions like that, that's when, you know, tough it out, put on a little bit tighter tippet or uh, stronger tippet and leader, play your fish as quickly as possible, keep them down in the water and release them so that they can go back to the deep, cool pools. Um, and just, you know, have a better chance of survival because it is really stressful on the fish um, when the temps are that that high. Um, but luckily, a lot of times, you know, late summer and stuff, trout are going to be making their ways up into those headwaters of, um, or the, like I say, headwaters, like we've, we've got some real big water around here, but <laughs> those, uh, those feeder creeks where the springs are feeding in um, and the water temps stay cool and consistent uh, pretty much year round, especially when the temps, when the air temperature is high, um, you know, those trout are going to be either sitting down in the deep holes, trying to stay cool or chilling under some grass in a, in a nice little feeder Creek. Yeah. But I mean, it's between water clarity, between scenery with you know, the bluffs and the hills. Um, the driftless is kind of trademarked for having all these trout streams that run through farmers pastures. So it's not uncommon to, you know, be making your way, up through a creek and next thing you know you come around a bend and there's a bunch of cattle staring at you so <laughs> it's pretty fun um it, it it can throw a wrench in your day if those cows decide to you know step in and cool off when they're upstream of you but um it, it's really unique and honestly just i mean i, I think it's it, it it's the, the the cow next to the trout stream is the the, the pinnacle of the pinnacle image of the driftless fishery yeah, my wife and I got to experience that a little bit last year. We went, we headed west, and um, man, I tell you, there was just something special about that. Like being yeah. just outside of this little farmhouse, got all these cows staring at us, and we're just pulling. And they weren't huge, but you know, twelve to fourteen inch browns, yeah. just just one after another after another. And it's like this; it just doesn't get any better. Exactly. Like yeah. so picturesque. And so of course, then we have to stop and take pictures of ourselves with the cows so that we can get, you know, that stereotypical driftless picture of, you know, us with fly rods and the cow and the Creek in the background. Um, Absolutely. It's stereotypical for a reason. I mean, <laughs> that's right, man. That's right. Like, I mean, tr try and do that out West, try and do it, do it, you know, anywhere else, but here and good luck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With the, the driftless being such a tremendous fishery, it, it also brings with it some challenges that are, that are unique, mm -hmm. I think, to here. And maybe, maybe less unique than I think. Or, or, yeah, I don't know how to say that right. But it, <laughs> it, it, it seems pretty unique. So I grew up watching, you know, Outdoor Channel and different things. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, fly fishing for trout, guys are either in drift boats or they're wading, you know, in these larger rivers and they're making these huge casts, you know, and the line is just unrolling out forever and ever. Mm -hmm. And then I get here and I can cast about 11 feet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and some places I just feel like I'm fishing with a cane pole oh, rather, yeah. rather yeah, than absolutely. a fly rod. Yeah. Tenkara so, fishing is, is definitely prevalent around here where you basically, you've got, you know, a, anywhere between a 10 and a 12 foot rod and you're basically no reel. You're just kind of flicking your fly in there. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you hit it right on the head. The majority of 
I would say the majority of fish caught in the driftless, um, depending on the size of water you're on, are going to be about, you know, your, your cast distance is going to be probably between 20 and 30 feet um, or maybe 10 to 30 feet uh, for the most part. Because you will have those super, super close where it basically, you know, it feels like the trout took your fly at your feet and, you're sitting there trying to scramble and put your rod up as high as you can above your head. You can strip in enough line to keep tension on them. But, but yeah, the, the driftless is, uh, is an awesome place to perfect your roll cast. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an awesome place to perfect your, your just simple pickup cast. Um, that's not to say that you can't, you know, still have the, a, you know, a longer, you know, get a couple of false casts in there and really lace one out there into a riffle. Um, but it's, you know, what you, you're going to be able to fish creeks around here that are, you know, about as wide as a sidewalk. Um, but that's not to say that you can't, you know, find ones that are as big as a four lane. So it, it's really, you know, from a casting standpoint, um, you know, a lot of folks say, if you can, if you can fish in the driftless, you can fish pretty much anywhere because in the driftless, you've got to be able to really stick one, you know, at a close range into a tight little pocket where the grass isn't, uh, you know, hanging over or anything like that. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it, it's just fun. It's challenging. You lose flies, you get frustrated, you hang up on the weeds and you have to blow out your hole to try and go get it. Or you can try and, <laughs> When, it, when I'm with uh, when I'm with Champs, we actually we, we call ourselves the Botch Brothers because we always <laughs> seem to find a way to screw up a cast. And then if we hang it up on the grass, we'll end up you know usually whoever hung it up will be a gentleman and just use our the tension from our line to pull the grass back for the other guy so he can fish it. But, <laughs> yeah, it, it's the driftless is, I mean, from a casting standpoint, it's just, it's such a fun little challenge and you know, it's, it's just intimate. It's really, really intimate because you're seeing these fish, you know, come up out of a riffle or come up out of a pool and just, you know, slap your, you know, your atoms or your caddis or anything like that. And it's just, it's just a riot. Yeah. Yeah. Are you using any specialized equipment for, for specifically for the driftless? And I asked that because, uh, the first time I got out with a nine foot fly rod, I'm like, man, this is like, this is too much rod for me. Like I had, I really had a hard time, like just managing mm-hmm. the size of this rod that I had, Oh uh, yeah, you know, went out. And so, but, but then I, I've tried to use some shorter stuff and I'm like, I don't really like the way this shorter stuff feels and works and sorry are you using specialized equipment um my my go-to rod's an eight and a half foot four weight um i'll usually fish that with an eight to nine foot leader depending on the type of fishing i'm doing if i'm throwing streamers it'll be shorter than that if i'm throwing even hoppers i usually shorten it up a little bit um just because i like to be able to when the shorter your, the, i guess i'll start it this way the longer your leader um the more finesse of a presentation, I guess it's easier to present your fly in a finesse manner. Whereas, um, on a shorter one, it's, it's easier to present it accurately, but it might not be as, you know, delicately placed on the water as, uh, you know, if you're 
throwing a nine or 10 foot leader with, uh, you know, a, a size 20, you know, BWO on there or something. <laughs> How important is that? Um, you know, that, that finesse presentation, because, uh, I'll be honest with you, I don't have it down. <laughs> yeah. It, it depends on, on the water conditions really. And what type or I guess not type of water, but yeah, what type of water you're fishing basically. Um, if you're fishing, you know, a really, really slow bend or the water's really glassy, it's going to be important. Um, you know, something like that. Cause basically no matter what, once your fly lands on the surface, it's going to create a ripple. Um, now, as I say that it's important to be kind of mindful of like what types of water are going to be holding fish. Um, usually you'll see fish throughout a Creek in the driftless. You'll see them in the bottoms of these, you know, really, really slow glides. Um, and you'll, you can watch them kind of dart around and do their thing, or maybe they'll see you first and then they all scatter. Um, <laughs> but it's important to know that typically when they're in that sort of a holding pattern, they're not really moving left or right. And they're just kind of chilling down there. Um, that's, that's generally not a feeding trout when they're in that position, because, you know, when you, when a, when a trout's looking for food, it's going to find likely places to get it. So those are typically going to be like bend pools or riffles where basically the current's a little bit stronger. Um, and the bend or the, basically the bugs that are crawling on the rock, um, they can, you know, they'll get dislodged or maybe they try and hatch, but they can't, they're not strong enough swimmers to make it to the surface. Um, they get washed downstream trout, see that little nymph floating towards them and they go at it. They, they nab it. Um, that's why, you know, if you're looking and you see a riffle that dumps out into a, into a larger pool, um, a lot of times that's, I mean, if you were to have to pick anywhere to, you know, almost, I don't want to say guarantee, but uh, guarantee that a fish is going to be there. Um, I, I should say a hungry fish is going to be there. You want to really target those riffles where they feed out into that slower water. Cause at the end of that riffle, the water is going to get a little bit deeper and it's not going to be as strong. So the trout can sit on either side of the current or they can basically use rocks and stuff as cover to break up the current. So they're not expending so much energy. And then when those bugs get dumped out out of the fast stuff into that slightly slower stuff, they're, you know, kind of, they're, they're literally flushed, I should say. Um, so they're, they're disoriented, they're swirling. There's a million different, you know, tiny hydrocurrents that are going on um, beneath the surface of the water from all sorts of various structure that's in there. Um, but basically these things get, flushed into this more open, easy to see, um, section of the water and trout are sitting down there in wait. They're waiting for those bugs to get flushed out that are, they got dislodged. And so they're going to target those areas to feed. Okay. Um, so to circle back to the finesse issue, um, it really comes down to how still is the surface of the water, which direction are the fish or the fish facing, and basically, uh, how clear is the water? Um, you know, yesterday I was out up near Viroqua and it, man, the water was just gin clear. It was mm. tough. Um, I mean, we were, we were spooking fish from 
it was similar to like your story earlier. I mean, we're spooking fish from 20, 30 feet away. Um, and the water is pretty low up there right now too. So the trout are really, really hyper aware, but I mean, it was really, really crucial that you lay those flies out there in a finesse manner. And I mean, we were throwing, um, like a little dropper rig kind of, I, I threw like a size, I think it was a size 16 or 18 atoms. I, I think it was a 16 just cause I wanted to have a little bit more, uh, buoyancy against the against the water and then i threw i, I started with a frenchie i threw a couple pink squirrels um just kind of shuffled through the fly box the frenchies were just killing because I, I was kind of scouting water and just trying to find you know where's more good spots to have in the back pocket um so i was throwing frenchies which is just like an awesome awesome prospecting pattern um for those of you who don't know it's kind of like a it's got like the body and the tail of a pheasant tail um, with like the same wire wrapping, but the thorax is typically uh, like a flashy pink dubbing. Um, so it's basically a skinny pink squirrel. And that's, you know, that for, for whatever reason, I've been told that it's because as, as you get further down in the water column and more and more light gets filtered out due to the water, colors begin to change and apparently pink starts turning tan. Um, Interesting. And I heard that from a, a fairly reputable source in the form of Craig Amaker, who's, you know, if you haven't heard of him, he's pretty much the, uh, he's, he's the man in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's more and more articles out there about that. Um, but for whatever reason, yeah, that's, that's, if you're looking for an answer on why the pink squirrel or the Frenchie works from a color standpoint, that would be it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've, I've often wondered about that. An- another thing that I've wondered about too, um, just because of my limited skill and two things that you kind of just alluded to that I'd really mm-hmm. like to jump into just a bit. Um, the first one is when do I need to change my fly? Like my first assumption is always the fly is probably okay. I just suck. Um, so how, how am I working it with that? And then, and then also like, what are some key spots that you can tell guys like, Hey, if you've got a lot of ground to cover and you, or your goal is to cover a good bit of ground in a day, like these are the spots that you need to make sure to stop. And like, these are some of the ones that you could maybe cast at once and move on. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that there's any spot that I'm going to cast at once, but, um, <laughs> Well, two, yeah, three, four, uh, five, six times. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess from the standpoint of, you know, when is it time to switch flies? A good rule of thumb is if you see bugs coming off or you see stuff in the water and you say you're at the point where you can kind of eyeball and be like, okay, I see, you know, mayflies or blue wings fly, or flying around by me. It looks like they're, I don't know, that could be a size 16. I don't know. Good rule of thumb is go a size down, go to an 18. Cause that's probably what it actually is. Um, you know, start smaller and work up, um, is a good rule of thumb. If you're, okay. you know, you've got stuff that like, I think this looks like what's coming off, but I'm not sure. Um, the driftless is also cool. I mean, fly fishing is cool in general in the sense that like, there's a lot of different patterns out there that look a lot like something, but nothing in particular. 
uh, one of like the pink squirrel, for example, it's, it's just bushy. It sort of could be a scud. It could be, you know, a really fat caddis, but it's got too many legs to be a caddis. You know, it, it, it's just one of those things that like, it, it's tough to explain why it works, but it really, really works. It's, yeah. you know, it, it's a famous fly is developed in the driftless. Um, and you know, a Frenchie's basically the same thing, but it, it holds the profile of more like a mayfly nymph would. Um, <clears throat> same with like a hippie stomper, hippie stompers and pink squirrels. Those two are like <laughs> the driftless staples that yeah. you need to go out anytime, you know, especially in, in the summer, especially once, uh, you know, we start seeing a little bit more of the terrestrial activity pick up and stuff terrest or like running a, a, a dry dropper rig with a foam bodied hippie stomper on top and a pink squirrel down below. That's about as driftless as it gets. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. All right. That's my new goal for the year. Drying out and all that you're, you'll throw, you know, switch the hippie stomper out for a big sloppy foam hopper and you can do the hopper dropper and, all that. And as you start getting into tighter creeks, you know, ditch the dropper and trust the hopper. Cause it's, it will produce, especially when you've got those super narrow creeks where there's just a tiny little pocket that you can maybe slap a hopper into. You're, you're going to find really good fish that way. <laughs> yeah. I, I've had a little bit better success getting, getting that through the grass too. Like if, it, mm -hmm. if the grass yeah. is really leaning out over, you know, a lot, a lot better success than trying to tuck a pink squirrel up underneath the bank. You know, oh, yeah. if I just, I can, and I don't know, I, I guess it's maybe the, the bigger profile, maybe it's the weight of a little bit more and I can just really get after it to get yeah, it through that There's grass. less wind resistance. You can kind of punch it through there a little bit better. Yep. It lands. You don't have to be very finesse with it. You can really drop it with a nice big splat and that will oftentimes just draw brown trout out. That'll hit it with absolute fury and that's when the party starts <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a bit about the places where you're trying to find fish on these uh on these streams so you mentioned first of all a spot where there's a nice riffle leading out into mm -hmm. a you know a slower pool or something like yep. that you know you you find a lot of fish right there at that sort of transition line what are some of the other yeah. kind of key things that that you're like i'm not walking past this uh I would say those, those riffles where they dump out into a pool, those are going to be the spots where I'll, I'll never really pass them up unless I've been there before. And I know it's like, it, it might look great on the surface, but it's not so great down below. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I typically approach those, um, depending on the type of fishing, if I'm going to run, you know, a dry dropper rig or something, uh, which is, you know, I, I should just, plug it like a dry dropper rig. Like if you're just getting out there and you want to maximize your time on the water, like it's the way to go. It really is. It's not to say that you won't, I don't know, maybe I'll angle it or anger the uh, dry fly purist here or whatever, but <laughs> you know, it, it's just, it's a fantastic way because you, you've got two hooks in the water. You know, if there is a, you know, a trout that doesn't want to come all the way up to the surface, there's a nymph down below to hit. Otherwise there's a big juicy, you know, dry sit on the surface for them to come up and smoke. Um, but when I'm out there, like prospecting, especially like if I'm on new water, or even if I'm not on new water and stuff that I've, you know, gone through multiple times, um, basically figuring out how you want to break down the pool. That's the best way to kind of 
I mean, make sure you get as many fish out of it as possible. Um, yeah, give me give me a step by step. I don't, I don't want to interrupt you, but I do want to say like, no, you're good. like really dive into this piece because I find myself <laughs> getting into a spot that looks super fishy, and I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, where do I start without spooking everything out of here the first time I hook yeah. one? Yeah, absolutely. So I think a, a great way to do that is to just start on the water that's closest to you. Basically, start close to you and okay. sort of fan out. So I'll sort of pick a, a lot of times I'll, you know, I'll pick a spot maybe in the tail end of the pool. So I'll cast set my fly hits relatively close to the middle of the pool. Uh, but my line's not going all the way over it and casting a big shadow and fish that way. Um, but casting, you know, into the middle of a pool so that the, if you've got a nymph on, it's got time to get down to the fish. Otherwise the fish that are feeding in the tail end of the pool, they have time to look up and see it and scan the water column and then eat. Um, that's usually where I'll start. And then I'll start working from that distance to basically the opposite bank, um, at that range. And then I'll bump it up maybe three feet or so, or four feet, um, and then do the same exact thing work near me and then push it all the way back to the opposite bank and then so on and so forth until I'm casting right up into the, like basically into the riffle. So it just dumps down into the, like right at the head of the pool. Um, that's usually how I'll break stuff down. I, I mean, that's just kind of a rule of thumb, no matter if I'm fishing a glide and I just see a big boulder sitting in the middle of it, that's kind of displacing some water and, creating a little bit of a current break or anything like that. Cause the, the fish, they, they trout, especially, I mean, any fish that's in a river, they're going to use structure to basically make their lives easier. Cause they, otherwise if they're sitting there fighting the current, they're sitting right in the strongest part, then they need to be eating during that entire time because otherwise they're, you know, they're just expending calories for no reason. So sure. that's, that's why you'll see fish resting in the bottoms of pools or in, you know, those slower moving glides where they can just kind of relax down there. There's a little bit less of a, a predatory threat because they're not in super shallow water. So a heron can't, not to say that a heron couldn't, I guess, dive bomb them and launch itself in there. I mean, that's a pretty long <laughs> neck and beak, but <laughs> I don't know how, I don't know how good of a strategy that would be for, uh, for a heron, but I think they're aware of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, no, no matter what part of the creek, if I see a spot that I've got a, you know, a little bit of a riffle or anything like that, I'm going to start casting closer to me and then work out. And that's basically going to keep me from, um, you know, I could, you know, whether or not you, you, maybe you go a little bit too far and you hang yourself up, well, then you've got to walk through all of that. Whereas if you're casting nearest to yourself and then working out, you've got a little bit more room to for error, I guess, and kind of perfect. You can sort of see what the current's doing. Um, there's any little micro currents that are going to twist things around or cause your fly line or anything to hang up. You need to mend a little bit more in a certain spot. You can figure all that out um, and kind of learn the water as you're fishing it. Yeah. Um, not to say if there's, you know, we were talking earlier about that brown trout that shot out of that log jam that you were talking oh, about. Like that still there, makes me there, sick. There, there, <laughs> Still makes there me are sick. spots that uh they absolutely do like there's spots that are just fishy spots and it's like okay i'm just gonna launch it right at that and like i don't really care if there's anything in there because i think what might be lurking under there is worth it mm-hmm. 
I also shouldn't say that glides don't hold fish ever. There are ways to do them. Um, especially if you've got a glide that's got like a, they call it lunker crib where basically it's, it looks like the side of a pallet stuck in underneath the bank, but basically it creates a fish hide underneath the bank or if there's an undercut bank or anything, that's where a lot of your larger fish are going to hide. Brown trout, especially they prefer to have cover from above. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, they're the larger fish, they tend to feed in lower light so they can get, uh, you know, more high calorie meals in the form of sculpins, um, you know, smaller trout, you name it. Uh, the, the low light really tends to be a better time to, to target those guys. Yeah. Um, or if you drop a big meaty crane fly right on top of them with enough time to for them to peek their head out get a look at it and <laughs> decide to go for it. But yeah, I mean, you, you can pull them out of the glides, but you've got to be very, very careful and uh, in your approach, especially. And I guess I should mention that too, um, especially when there's a, a fly or I'm sorry, not a fly, a, a, a fish underneath the bank in one of those longer cribs. When you're approaching water, your footsteps and like how you approach the, you know, every step you take is fairly critical, especially once you're like right up on the bank. Um, fish have a lateral line. All fish do. Um, it's basically how they sense vibration in the water. So especially predatory fish, um, like, you know, smallmouth and I mean, trout as well. They feel the vibration of little, I mean, other fish or, predators or prey or anything like that. Um, they feel the vibrations with their lateral line and then they kind of get an idea of like, okay, there's something here and you know, they've, they've got it fine tuned enough, uh, you know, within themselves to figure out whether it's like, okay, that feels like the vibration of a clumsy fisherman tripping on a boulder and <laughs> splashing <laughs> or, you know, it could be, okay, that's the vibration of a sculpin darting around or a little, you know, black nose dace or something like that. But I, I want to pursue that and get a good meal. Um, but in those glides, especially your, your footsteps on the bank, they vibrate through the, basically through the soil into the water so if you are stomping around, like it, that will spook fish. They could have no idea that you're there from a visual standpoint, but a lot of times, especially in the driftless where it is that tight water, um, you know, those, you, your footsteps really do go a long way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I found last summer a way to, uh, a, way, a way to really spook some fish. I uh, <laughs> was walking along a Creek bank and I won't say the name of the Creek because I probably ruined someone's favorite fishing spot. Uh, I didn't know there was a lunker crib there until I fell through it. Oh. I got, like it gave way underneath me and <laughs> like stabbed a hole in my waders and what like the jagged wood. And it was like, dude, what in the, no. like, how did this even, I didn't know it was there. There was grass growing up on top of it and everything. Oh, yeah. And uh, I had no idea until I'm knee deep and I'm like, I had a hard time getting out. I'm like, I'm going to have to call somebody to get me out of this I'm freaking, sure, yeah. you know, crate basically in the side <laughs> of the Creek. Here I am trapped. And you know, this is going to be the most embarrassing nine one one call ever. Uh, <laughs> you, can you guys come get me? I just, I fell while fishing and yeah. need your help. So I had a really intrusive thought yesterday while I was out there and I was like, there was, 
there was a, a down, like I was in a pasture um, and there was a down fence and I was like, I was looking at it and the visibility in this Creek was pretty poor. It was just where it was one of those days where a lot of the soil that had been frozen and was kind of being held up by the ice was thawed out now. And it was just plunking into the water left and right. So everything was pretty stained, but I was like, I've only got about a foot of visibility here. What if I were to like slip? And then I just, my mind went to the worst case scenario. I was like, what if there's like some buried hog panel or like barbed wire or something? My boot gets caught. What am I doing? Like, oh man. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah I, I, that would have terrified me crunching into a lunker crib. <laughs> oh dude. It was like the worst fishing experience. Like I was, I mean, I would have been wet on, on the inside of my waders had it not pierced through. Because, yeah. uh, just from peeing myself from, I mean, have you, ever, have you ever been fishing and just suddenly the ground underneath you gives way? It's awful. Uh, no, but so. I did have one, uh, I, I God, when was it? This is probably 20, 2017. I think it was maybe summer of 2018, but I, we, we shot out to Iowa County. Um, it was like a 45 minute drive from where we were at in blue mounds and my buddy and I were like, yeah, we both got off work. Let's, you know, let, let's shoot out there. We'll, we'll fish until dark and you know, it'll be a, a short trip, but it, Hey, it might be worth it. Why not? And I'd completely forgotten that this one section of the stream was like, it just had a, a pit, like an absolute pit. Uh, and I'm going to use, I tell this story to uh, just, you know, from my experience, just, take your time when you're getting into the water, especially yeah. if it's, you know, water that's relatively new, like, cause things change. And I, <laughs> we were, we were going to get in at the point that we got in like a couple days before. And I was like, no, 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 forget that. Like we didn't catch anything out of there. Let's, let's just get in here. And I looked down I could see a big rock and I took a step down and there was, you know, a big boulder and I took another step and just plummeted into this pit went straight over my waders, went over my head and was lucky enough to uh, have my wading belt cinched tight enough. And my foot found a boulder and I was able to kick back up off of it. But yeah, my, <laughs> it, it, my, my buddy Logan, who I was with, he said it was the stereotypical, like, you know, kind of cartoon image of like, you hear this big splash and there's just a hat sitting on the surface. And <laughs> man, that was that, <laughs> I don't want to say learning the lesson the hard way is the best way to go, but it's not a mistake that a lot of them get. Yeah, that, that's a that is a scary thing, man. Like it, it really oh, yeah. is. There's a there's a there's a creek um, here close to where I live. Well, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I, I'll go. I'll throw it out there. It's uh, it just gets it gets a ton of fishing pressure. But I've had a lot of luck out there. Mm -hmm. um, oh yeah, and it's not terribly far for me to get to. But but dude, there are some spots like that, and some of those bends. When yeah. I've been out there by myself and I take a step and I realize like, oh, that's an inch from the top of my waders. Like I'm about to go. Oh, yeah. And so it's like, all right, let me climb back up out of this thing because there's no, there's no good way around it. You know, there's no good no. way to get past. I got to climb back out of this, out of the Creek and f try to figure out. And, and it's pretty dirty, like pretty muddy too, pretty like yeah. stained yeah. water. And so yeah, it's that's... like, you're screwed if you don't have a, if you're not going slow or if you don't have a pretty good idea of what's under there. Right. So, exactly. Yeah. I would yeah. like but, to make oh, a, I, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I don't carry one, but I know people who do carry a waiting staff. It's not the worst idea from a safety standpoint. You don't need one, but 
if you're out in a new water, it's, you know, a little bit of an insurance policy. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> it's not a bad idea. And actually, I just, a guy uh, that I know just got me one of the, like a fly fishing, uh, basically a, a life jacket almost, but you oh, wear sure. it underneath and it's not water activated, it's pool activated. So if you ever get oh, yeah. sucked underneath, you can yank that, you can yank a cord on it and it'll inflate itself. Okay. Um, yeah. So I don't, I don't know. Um, I have to check it out a little bit more, but he's done oh, fly fishing. So he's like, he's like, this is what my family got me. So I didn't kill myself while I was out there. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh, and I, w- I would like to take the opportunity to publicly apologize to Trout Unlimited, who I know put that lunker bunker or whatever. in. Uh, <laughs> sorry guys. Uh, if you let me know, I'll come help you guys install another one one day. Uh, it'd be great. So just reach out, let me know. Uh, <clears throat> sorry about that. But I think that one is past its prime. Anyway, uh, so, so we'll move I on. Bet it still holds fish. What's that? I bet it still holds fish. It probably holds more fish now. Like they're probably like, oh, look, <laughs> added structure. Like this gives me even more than just a box to sit in. So, exactly. Look at these angles I've got to work with now. That's right. That's right. Oh, that's great. Well, all right. So we're coming up. We're right at uh, about an hour, a little over an hour uh, on this topic. I got. I got two more questions that I, I wanted to hit on. Uh, the first one is this. Can you give me some sort of general driftless pointers? Like we've covered a lot of territory, but I'm sure there's something that we've left out. So any any last like, hey, if you're going to fish the driftless, you need to know this. Hmm. I would say it's definitely worth um you know, if you, it's not essential, but I, I use Onyx a ton or some sort of a mapping system so I know where there are easements and where I can and can't cross through a guy's pasture or anything. That's not to say you can't always just go up and knock on a door and ask, you know, a farmer if you can cut through because 99% of the time you're going to get a yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. One of my friends used to carry a six pack with him every time he went out to try new water so he'd have something to bribe the uh, landowners with whenever, <laughs> whenever he was knocking on. It's not doors. a bad idea. <laughs> not at all. Um, but yeah, I mean, y- using that to, uh, I mean, Wisconsin is great from the standpoint of as long as you're in the water, um, the, the stream beds, public land, regardless of where you're at. So it is, you know, you can find a bridge and, get in there you just have to keep your boots in the water if there's no easement if there is an easement then you're usually given you know 15 20 yards on either side of the bank um to kind of have a little bit of wiggle room and you know the the more the more concentrated good fishing is you know you get into your uh your iowa your grant your crawford richland um vernon counties um really in the heart of the driftless there uh, you'll find more and more easements and, you know, fishing access there. Um, with, you know, the Trout Unlimited and the DNR, they're really, really awesome too about having uh, boot and wader cleaning stations as well. So yep. take advantage of those just yep. so we're not transporting any, uh, any invasives that way. Um, <clears throat> other than that, I would say... And perfect that roll cast. It's <laughs> perfect that roll <laughs> cast. That's a good one. You know, yeah. get, get comfortable, um, you know, with your with those shorter casts, and you know that can be, you know, 
circling back to uh, name drop Craig again. I know he ties his own leaders, so if they, they need to be pretty fine, they can be fine. Um, and you know, a lot of mo- most leaders that come from a factory, whenever they're extruded, so that the the butt section of them is pretty thick, and then they taper down to you know being the the five and four X and six X that we you know typically throw for those finer presentations, or even just throwing terrestrials and stuff in the driftless. Um, yeah, I'd say. I'd say if you're fishing the Driftless 4 and 5X, we'll pretty much get you anywhere you need to go. Um, like I said, my rod is a an eight and a half foot four weight. You know, you, I, I, I started my fly fishing journey with a uh, nine foot six weight, which was way overpowered for Driftless <laughs> trout. Um, not to say I didn't fish it for three years and, sure. you know, have plenty of success with it. Um, so, I mean, don't get intimidated and think that like you have to have a certain rod or certain gear. It's in my opinion, far more enjoyable to fish with a lighter rod in the driftless where, you know, you can, I mean, I've seen, seen photos of guys who have pulled in, you know, 20 inch Browns on a two weight or a three weight and stuff, which I can't imagine what that fight was like, but I'm jealous. (laughs) It's like fighting a tarpon. Um, It's pretty much a tarpon at that point. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I I would say those are probably my, on top of, you know, carrier hippie stompers, carrier pink squirrels. um, Scuds are always good to have. Like if I were to, if I were to give fly recommendations to anyone who just wants to be safe and, uh, you know, just have good driftless flies in their box, you know, pink squirrels, Frenchies, uh, midges and scuds for nymphs, I'd say, you know, as well as the, you know, your typical pheasant tail, um, for dries, sparkle duns are fantastic. And I guess I should, I should mention here emergers briefly, um, because there will be days where there's an awesome hatch going on and you see fish rising like crazy and you're throwing your big elk caddis or, you know, a blue winged olive, uh, dry fly. And fish are just ignoring it left and right. Yeah. So um, tell me what it, what is an emerger then? Yeah. So an emerger is basically it, it's it can be an unweighted nymph, or it can be a dry fly. But basically, the fly sits just below the surface of the water. Um, so there can be a, a phenomenon that isn't really that phenomenal because it happens all the time, <laughs> um, where when a nymph is trying to hatch it basically becomes crippled and it can't get out of its uh, shuck or its exoskeleton when it's trying to get to the surface and shed that so it can emerge its wings. Um, and basically it, it can't break through the, the surface tension of the water. So it gets hung up below the surface or just slightly below. And that's the easiest meal out there for a fish because when they're feeding on the surface and there's, you know, mayflies or caddis or crane flies, you name it sitting on the surface, they're in a position where they can fly away. Whereas one of these guys, they are trapped beneath the surface. The water tension has got them pinned there. They can't swim. They can't fly. They're stuck in that shuck and trout just can't resist them. It's, it's the easiest meal out there. So when in doubt, uh, you know, you can, you can fish emergers. They're, they're tricky. Um, but they, they certainly can be, um, you know, you can, if you have a, a pheasant tail that's unweighted, if there's a, you know, a, a mayfly hatch going on, 
uh, unweighted, meaning no bead on it or anything. You can put floating on that and that'll sit just below the film or right in the film. Um, sparkle dungs are absolutely killer. X caddis, um, all those, you know, and you, you can fish them a number of ways. You can put floating on your tippet. You can float floating only on, you know, the, the wing and the top part of the fly. So it kind of sits at an angle where like the, you know, it's, its wings are sort of sitting on the surface, but the rest of it's hanging down below the, uh, the they call it the film, that little top section between the, the surface and, you know, the rest of the water column. Yep. Um, but basically, yeah, it's like trout can't resist those. So I would say definitely carry those. Um, hippie stompers, like I mentioned earlier, uh, a little foam high-vis ant is always killer, especially like once June rolls around, like you, you don't really think to think of like an ant hatch typically, but, uh, or at least most people don't, but ants are really, really awesome options. Um, I'm sitting there staring at my fly box right now. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, if we let you keep going, you'll probably just list them all. You'd be like, you need all of these. Yeah. Just have them all. (laughs) (laughs) Leeches are good. Um, and you know, any sort of, any sort of small streamer, um, or, I mean, you can throw big articulated ones and they do produce It's kind of a, you're going for a few big fish rather than a lot of, you know, average fish. You're not going to catch every fish in the Creek with, uh, the big articulated sex dungeon or anything like that. But yeah. <laughs> it's not to say you won't be rewarded if you're uh, at it long enough. Sure. Sure. And know where to throw them. Yeah, man. All right. So the guy who says, okay. Pierce, you've convinced me. I'll give fly fishing a try. Where are you going to send them for some sort of initial resources? Uh, I would say feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at Good Chance Fly Fishing. Um, our website is goodchanceflyfishing.com. We try to keep it pretty simple. Um, otherwise, as far as resources, um, the Driftless Angler Fly Shop up in Viroqua, if you're looking for a fish report, those guys are awesome um i i actually have yet to to meet matt and jerry um in person yet uh we haven't even messaged it's been pretty much just liking each other's stuff on instagram uh (laughs) for the past couple years but i've been meaning to make a trip up there and uh just haven't haven't gotten a chance to yet but those guys are fantastic and they also run an awesome guide service up there as well um so yeah, those guys, especially for that, that whole Viroqua area and just like driftless fishing in, in general, that's, they, they really run a fantastic program. Yep. Yeah. I got to, <laughs> I got to meet Jerry last spring. We went with a guide out of, uh, out of there and, and, uh, had a really good experience. I've talked with Matt a couple of <laughs> times. Um, and, uh, there's possibility. We'll see if we can get him on the podcast at some point. We tried, we tried last, uh, last spring, just couldn't make it work. Those guys are busy. So if you want to, if you want to stop by the Driftless Angler and get to talk to somebody, I recommend not going at a busy time because man, when they're busy, they are busy. That place gets packed. Absolutely. I'll also use this as an opportunity to plug. If you're in the Madison area, uh, by now I'm hoping, but I don't know if it will be yet, but the musky fool, Fly shop is opening up in Wanakee. Um, yes, sir. I heard. And yeah, those guys are going to be, I believe they're going to be supplying some trout stuff. I think Wyatt Reeves from Black Earth Angling is going to be uh, running the, the trout program over there. And he's 
I would say one of the best fishermen I know, if not the wow. best. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I'd put him in the top three for sure. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I had, uh, I had Dan on, uh, from musky fool last year and oh, sure. we, we talked then and said, Hey, you know, as soon as you, then it was kind of super top secret when we were recording. Cause it, I mean, it's been a long time ago. Um, but he was like, yeah, man, we're, we're looking to do brick and mortar. And I was yeah. like, as soon as that place is open, we are getting together and doing another episode. Cause he's just a fun dude. I mean, he's just a good oh, yeah. guy. And, um, you know, they, they have the musky fool, but they fish for lots of other stuff too. I mean, they're, mm -hmm. you know, they're pretty diverse yeah. folks. So, but um, you know, do want to make sure that, that people know, reach out to good chance fly fishing. You've got some dates open for the spring still. Yep. All right. So Absolutely. if I'm people hoping are, maybe they'll be, uh, will be full by the time this airs, but <laughs> well, if they're not, but if, if they're, they're not, not, hit us up. Goodchanceflyfishing.com. Good chance fly fishing on Instagram. Awesome. Well, man, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, if anybody has any questions, feel free to reach out to you or to me and I'll point them your direction. Absolutely. I appreciate it, Josh. This has been fun.